Welcome to Tom Bradford's Torah class, an in-depth Old Testament Bible study that's brought to you from a Hebrew roots perspective. This week's lesson is week number six, the book of Revelation, chapter two, continued. Love, or better, the lack of love, that was the issue that God had with the believing assembly at Ephesus. In the first letter, in Revelation chapter 2, Ephesus was commended for being doctrinally sound, for persevering against not only pagan influences, but also against false apostles who apparently claimed to be bringing godly teaching. Now, there is little other way to take this indictment against these lying apostles than to mean that they held themselves up as or, or thought themselves to be believers. The Ephesus leadership had the wisdom to test these visiting apostles using the best way available to them and to us. They compared what those apostles said against God's word. And God's word in that era was the Old Testament. Now there are many opinions about exactly what this loss of love in the Ephesian congregation was indicating. The most typical explanation in modern times is that their love for Christ was substantially diminished and they instead opted for obeying rules and, and maintaining a very strict vision of purity of worship. Another popular viewpoint is that they lost their zeal for practicing the gospel. Now, I don't see either of these explanations as likely, but they have become the predominant stance. Rather, in my opinion, the sense of it is that the love that at first characterized the Ephesian believers was manifested in a passion to show loving kindness to one another and to demonstrate Christ's love in their actions towards those who were outside their group, their local community. This meant that at first they were outbound focused in their ministry as opposed to serving mainly themselves. Christ emphasized that we are saved for a purpose. And that purpose is not merely so that each of us can have a safe, secure, and happy personal future that includes residing in heaven when we die. It was never meant that we should walk an aisle, pray the sinner's prayer, and then retire from service to God. And then also retire from doing good deeds for our fellow man because, oh my gosh, those are works. Yeshua said this in John 15, 16, You did not choose me, I chose you. And I have commissioned you to go and bear fruit, fruit that will last, so that whatever you ask from my Father in my name, he may give you. 
And to these same Ephesians, Paul said in Ephesians 2.10, For we are of God's making, created in union with the Messiah Yeshua, for a life of good actions, already prepared by God for us to do. Actions. So love combined with action, that is to be the mission of every believer. And when either love or action is removed from the equation, we're not being obedient. Our mission will not be effective. The consequence threatened upon the Ephesians for their actions without love was that they would cease to exist as a God-authorized assembly of believers. They would be removed from the body of Christ followers because God would banish them from Himself just as He did with Adam and Eve. And what is God's intended result from this banishment? Revelation 2.7 Those who have ears, let them hear what the Spirit is saying to the Messianic communities. To Him winning the victory, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in God's Gan Eden, Garden of Eden. We are directly told in Revelation 2.7 that for those Ephesians who turn from this sin of actions without love, they will eat from the tree of life. So correspondingly, those who do not turn, the opposite will be the result. What does eating from the tree of life represent? Eternal life with God. Recall, I'm going to remind you of this over and over, this letter is to believers. So the threat is aimed at believers. Well, the next letter is to the believers of Smyrna. Let's reread the contents of that letter. Turn your Bibles to Revelation chapter 2. We're going to start at verse 8. If you have a complete Jewish Bible, it's on page 1534. 1534. We're going to read from verses 8 to 11. This is Revelation chapter 2. The letter to Smyrna. To the angel of the Messianic community in Smyrna write, Here is the message from the first and the last who died and came alive again. I know how you are suffering, how poor you are, though in fact you're rich. And I know the insults of those who call themselves Jews but aren't. On the contrary, they are a synagogue of the adversary. Now don't be afraid of what you're about to suffer. Look, the adversary is going to have some of you thrown in prison in order to put you to the test, and you will face an ordeal for ten days. Remain faithful, even to the point of death, and I will give you life as your crown. Those who have ears, let them hear what the Spirit is saying to the Messianic communities. He who wins the victory will not be hurt at all by the second death. This very short letter brings with it full con uh, 
commendation, full commendation of the congregation at Smyrna and contains no admonishments of anything that is displeasing to God. Something that any believing congregation would long to hear. However, it does contain a warning of persecution that's coming. Now verse 8 begins the letter by reiterating who the message giver is. It is the one who is the first and the last who died and came alive again. So we have this divine being describing himself by mixing traditional Old Testament descriptions of God the Father, the first and the last, with traditional New Testament descriptions of God the Son, died and came alive again. And it is somewhat surprising that this divine being just continues to avoid identifying himself by name. I mean, how easy it would seem to be to just say, hey, this is Yeshua. Or some positive identification is definitive. But he doesn't. It is actually also characteristic of John to describe God in a mysterious, if not ambiguous way, just as the divine being of John's revelation vision is doing. Looking at earlier writings of John, we find that he begins his gospel account with these memorable words, John 1.1. 1, 1. You can all probably say it by memory. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. All things came to be through him, and without him nothing had been made. See, John is presenting us with the paradox for which he has no solution. He only knows that it's the truth. This is the very definition of faith. Assuming we take the term the word to mean something like the pre-incarnate son and we take the term God to indicate the father, perhaps the Godhead, then when we look at John's words with any kind of intellectual honesty, he says plainly that on the one hand, the word was with God, meaning a certain distinction between God and the word must exist. And on the other hand, the word was God meaning that there is also some kind of inexplicable organic unity between God and the Word. These are largely incompatible attributes relative to the four-dimensional universe that we live in, hence the paradox. Our God, blessed be His name, our God is at once incomprehensible and yet sufficiently knowable for us to have a relationship with Him. But also for us to obey His set down laws and commandments. Humans in every age 
have been tempted to go beyond faith in God and obedience to God by defining and redefining His attributes and His substance and the results have included a shattering of our faith into thousands of denominations. It is futile, if not self-deceptive, for we, his worshipers, to believe that we or any human being can adequately comprehend this mysterious paradox of the substance and the form of Almighty God that John lays out for us in his gospel and he follows up in the book of Revelation. As you will soon see at the beginning of each of the seven letters this divine being of John's vision describes himself a little bit differently still without adding his name. Or better, he continues to add various bits of information to give us a maybe a better picture of his nature. In the first letter to the Ephesians, Paul's letter to the Ephesians, he was the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks among the seven gold menorahs. Now to begin the second letter to Smyrna, he is the first and the last who died and came alive again. And I made a mistake. I said Paul's letter. I meant John's letter to the Ephesians. See, it's critical that as we read what John recorded for us to take It is, we have to read it as is. Take it as is. And that includes accepting in faith the often non-standard descriptions of God in His various forms and roles that we find in Revelation. And being less concerned about assigning a specific name that neither God nor John gives to us. The city of Smyrna was a very wealthy port city and every bit as much an idolatrous cult center as was Ephesus. Emperor worship was Smyrna's hallmark. It was about 40 miles north of Ephesus and it is not mentioned in the New Testament as a place that Paul or any other evangelist visited so it's unclear how the gospel first came to that city. But the words of this letter show that the city had at least one synagogue likely more meaning it had a substantial Jewish population. The thing to take away is that the believing congregation of Smyrna was a tiny minority. So it didn't have it any easier than the believers at Ephesus. Now within this context, then verse 9 is an important one to get right when laying various Bible versions side by side 
we see a number of somewhat different interpretations of this verse. Let's compare just three. In the complete Jewish Bible that we just read a few minutes ago of Revelation 2.9 I know how you are suffering, how poor you are, although in fact you are rich, and I know the insults of those who call themselves Jews but aren't. On the contrary, they are a synagogue of the adversary. In the King James Version I know thy works and tribulation and poverty, but thou art rich, and I know the blasphemy of them which say they are Jews and are not, but are the synagogue of Satan. In the NET Bible, I know the distress you are suffering in your poverty, but you are rich. I also know the slander against you by those who call themselves Jews and really aren't, but they're a synagogue of Satan. None of these are wrong, per se. But some either highlight or they miss entirely some important points that are there in the Greek. For instance, the complete Jewish Bible and the NET Bible seem to overlook two important Greek words that begin this verse. Ergon and Thlipsis. The the, uh, King James Version does a much better job by saying, I know thy works and thy tribulation. Ergon, works, is exactly what it sounds like. It means deeds, acts, things that are done. So God is telling Smyrna he's well aware of the actions and the activities that they have been doing, and this is in the context of doing things that promote the good news and necessarily involve active outbound ministry. At the same time, they're suffering thlipsis, tribulation for it. Thlipsis actually means to press together, apply pressure. It is the same word that is used in the scriptures to describe pressing grapes until the juice comes out. Only when used metaphorically does it take on this sense of oppression or distress. Therefore, we aren't told directly what this pressure or distress is that the believers of Smyrna are experiencing, but clearly it has to do with their trust in Messiah Yeshua and the works that they're doing that comes from that trust. Considering the context of the verse that Philipsis is used in, then it seems likely that it is not that the believers are under some widespread physical abuse, but rather that they are under constant pressure from family, from friends, and the local society because the believers embrace a different faith than the others. Nothing is more common or powerful among all societies than the pressure to conform to the standard of the majority. The pressures are usually additive with none being particularly intense. From being poked fun at, 
to not being invited to certain social gatherings, to being spoken about negatively. As sentient and, and, and emotional creatures, human beings indeed suffer from being regularly shunned and shamed. One doesn't have to be beaten to feel beaten down. In time, it can become exhausting. It can make you doubt what you're doing that makes you so different from the societal norms. Now the other thing I want to say about the word thlipsis is that because a proper translation of this word can be tribulation, then we find thlipsis used in relation to the end times. And especially among evangelical Christians, who hasn't heard of the tribulation or the great tribulation? Or as it is in the Greek, Thlipsis and Megas Thlipsis. However, Thlipsis is in reality a verb. Even though Christian translators at times use it in English like a noun. That is, Thlipsis expresses action. But Christian interpreters have also used, or better misused, the word as though it's a name. Thus, the same way that Thlipsis is used right here in Revelation 2.9 is the way we ought to use it throughout Revelation. Even in Revelation 7.14, where it is that we get the term Great Tribulation, that is taken by so much of modern Western Christianity as the biblical name for a precise <clears throat> period of time or maybe a specifically named event, that's not what's meant. Indeed, we find the words, English words, Great Tribulation in 714, but most Bible translations don't capitalize Great or tribulation because they acknowledge that to do so would turn it into the name of a time period or an event. The, again, the King James Version is a good example. And I said unto him, Sir, thou knowest, and he said to me, These are they which came out of great tribulation. Notice the the is not there. Who came out of great tribulation and they have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Great Tribulation is not capitalized because it's not, not the name of something. And the article, the, is not present in the Greek. So it is not out of the Great Tribulation, but simply out of Great Tribulation. That is, out of great pressure, great distress. So it is quite the misnomer to speak of the tribulation or the great tribulation as though they are named events of the future. And this, of course, has an impact on many of the popular doctrines of the end times. Now we're going to discuss this further when we get to those instances in later chapters. Continuing on in verse 9. God 
says he also sees their poverty, and yet in reality they're rich. See, what's being compared and contrasted here is that while the Smyrna believers may indeed be materially poor, spiritually speaking, their faithful trusting means they are full of abundance. And the context of the verse seems to indicate that at least part of the reason they are materially, uh, materially poor is because of their faith in Jesus Christ. So the pressures they faced aren't at all like the, the minimal, although mounting, pressures modern Western Christians face today. Whereby our main afflictions might amount to losing a few friends or some family members regarding us as holier than thou. So we're no longer invited to gatherings because we're wet blankets. The believers of Smyrna didn't have legal protections like we have in the West. They could lose their jobs. People might not buy their goods. They could be publicly ridiculed and humiliated. So whatever you might be facing today regarding being shunned or ridiculed for your faith, that is minuscule compared to what many believers faced during John's day. Well, next we get to a very difficult section of verse 9. Take a look at it again because I want you to see this. It's where it says, And I know the insults of those who call themselves Jews but aren't. On the contrary, they're a synagogue of the adversary. Now, oddly enough, even though nearly all Bible commentators and pastors would agree that an accepted rule of Bible hermeneutics is that whenever you encounter a word or a phrase in the scriptures that makes sense in the plain reading of it, that's how it ought to be taken. But the opposite happens when this verse is interpreted. Instead of taking it plainly, as it makes full sense to do so, commentators employ the use of metaphor and allegory to turn the obvious meaning of this on its head. Why? In order to make it fit with long-established doctrines that are based on an anti-Jewish mindset. The verse speaks of all those who call themselves Jews aren't. Plain enough. And yet, nearly all Bible con commentators take it to mean Jews who actually are Jews. But they are Jews who come to Judaize, which means that somehow they aren't Jews any longer in God's mind. That is, if Jews Judaize, whatever that means, various people, then Bible commentators assume God disqualifies them as Jews now. Nowhere is such a thing found in the New Testament. Nowhere 
is a Jew divested of his Jewishness by God or by other Jews because of some belief or action he has taken unless that Jew has personally renounced his own Jewishness. So not only is it disingenuous to say that this can only be referring to Judaizing Jews, it also avoids the obvious. This is speaking about Gentiles who come claiming to be Jews. Now this is not very hard to figure out. Because all humans are either a Jew or Gentile. There's no third option. If, as God says, these folks call themselves Jews but aren't, well, that only leaves one other choice. They're Gentiles. But why would Gentiles come to the Smyrna congregation saying they're Jews? Because Judaism, contrary to the imagination, and by the way, I had this completely confirmed at this conference I was at this past week, it was quite a popular religion in the first century AD. Many Gentiles converted to Judaism, but especially in the diaspora, they practiced their own version of the Jewish religion, a very Hellenized version of the Jewish religion. Yet, just as we see today in our time, many Gentiles believe that because they have a great affinity towards the Jewish people or practice many of their traditions or even attend a Jewish synagogue, they now also go so far as to hold themselves up as Jews. And it can surprise Gentiles of this ilk when true Jews figure out that these Gentiles are not actual Jews and sometimes they're shunned as a result. This verse concludes with, they are a synagogue of the adversary. Now clearly these Gentiles claiming to be Jews, and in this context claiming to be Jewish believers in Christ, were phony on several levels. And God denounces them by calling them a synagogue of Satan. Now since Satan, Satan, is a Hebrew word that means simply adversary, the idea is that these fake Jews are being led by evil, even if they think otherwise. But let's also address the issue of the use of the word synagogue here. Indeed, we find the, great, the Greek word synagogue used here, which can mean assembly, just like ecclesia means assembly. But without doubt, in this context of referring it to a Jewish religious assembly, it definitely means a synagogue, just like we think of it. God is not denouncing the institution of the synagogue. Rather, since the believers at Smyrna meet as a synagogue, led by Jews, then it's a play on words to accuse the false Jews as being a false synagogue. A synagogue not of God, but a synagogue of the adversary. Do you see how that, how that plays together? In verse 10 now comes a warning of coming persecution. Now I want you to pay attention to this. 
The belief today by many Christians is that we will not suffer persecution in the end times, but rather we're going to be whisked away in an event called the rapture. And we're going to avoid it all. Yet here we have a group of believers in Smyrna who receives nothing but positive marks from God. Still, he informs them, you're going to go through persecution. You believers at Smyrna, who I have no problem with, you're going to go through persecution and you're not going to be able to avoid it. Why would we believe that modern followers of Christ will not experience the same? God tells the believers in Smyrna they're going to be thrown in prison. Some will. And they will be put to the test. The test likely is referring to what happens after they're imprisoned, you see, because in the Roman era, prison's not a place where people go to serve out a sentence. Boom, 90 days for you. One year. No, 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 no. You don't steal and go to prison for a year. Rather, prison was where the accused was sent to await his trial. Or if after a trial, the prisoner was found guilty and sentenced to death, which was the usual result, then prison was where he awaited his execution. So going to prison was a frightening thing. And a person could languish in prison for a very long time, simply waiting for his trial to occur. Indeed, for anyone it would be a test. For a believer, who apparently would have trumped up charges brought against him by folks who used that charge to harass him for no other reason than bigotry against his faith, it was all the harder to stay true to that faith. God says that the Smyrna believers will face this oppression for 10 days. Now it's very difficult to ascertain exactly what this time period meant. 10 days. And no doubt it symbolizes something. But what? Biblically, 10 represents wholeness, fullness, or a completed cycle. Some say it simply means a short time. Others claim there were 10 identifiable periods of persecution upon believers starting with Nero in 64-65 AD, going all the way up to Diocletian in 312 AD. If we take the 10 days as meaning wholeness or a completed cycle, then it probably means something like until the time allotted for this oppression runs its course. While I favor that meaning, I can't say that's what it is for certain. Nonetheless, in the face of being thrown into prison, God tells the believers of Smyrna to remain faithful even if it means their death. Could you do that? The context of this is just as we covered. You weren't thrown into a Roman prison to serve a sentence. In time there would be a trial and being executed was a real possibility. I want to say something to you that a Bible professor named Charles Feinberg said 
that made quite an impression on me. Perhaps it will you as well. He said, in the Old Testament, saints were delivered from death. But in the New Testament, saints triumph over death. Taken as a generality, that is a true statement. It's something for us to consider. The only death that believers are guaranteed to avoid is the so-called second death, eternal death. Physical death, just as we know it, is guaranteed to us, just as it is to non-believers. Thus, our hope, a believer's hope, is not to avoid tribulation and death, but rather our hope is in the Lord. Our hope is to wear an eternal crown of glory. Thus the Lord didn't give the Smyrna believers an easier, a miraculous way out of this coming persecution. Rather, it may be that their death was the only way out. But provided they died hanging on to their faith, it was an eternal victory. Just as Christ's death on the cross was an eternal victory for us all. Well, the letter to Smyrna ends with the same sort of conditional promise as did the letter to the Ephesians. The promise is that if, if the believers of Smyrna are victorious, then they will not experience the second death. That is, provided the believers of Smyrna stay faithful to Christ, don't renounce Him to save their skins, they will not be subject to eternal death. But also, as with the promise to the Ephesians, the other side of that promise is that if the Smyrna believers do not stay faithful unto death, then even in the face of prison and oppression, they will experience the second death. One of the best ways, I think, to visualize this comes from a favorite movie of mine called The Kingdom of Heaven. It takes place during the time of the Christian Crusades and in one scene, Saladin, the great leader of the vast Muslim armies, has surrounded a barricaded Jerusalem that was just full of frightened Christians. Now the situation was hopeless and death was a near certainty for every man, woman and child that were hiding behind those thick ancient walls. When a young crusader knight addressed the people of Jerusalem with a call to fight to the death the priest of Jerusalem told him he was a fool. He had a better suggestions. suggestion. His words were, convert now, repent later. That is, convert to Islam to save your life. And then sometime in the future when you're in a safe place, repent and return to Christianity. God is warning the believers of Smyrna 
There's no such option available to them or to anyone ever. The price for even attempting it, according to God, is our eternal life. Let's move on to letter number three. We'll just get started with it a little bit. The letter to Pergamum. This is found in Revelation chapter 2, beginning at verse 12. Again, complete Jewish Bible, page 1534. Follow along with me. To the angel of the Messianic community in Pergamum write, Here is the message from the one who has the sharp, double-edged sword. I know where you're living, there where the adversary's throne is, yet you are holding on to my name. You did not deny trusting me, even at the time when my faithful witness Antipas was put to death in your town, there where the adversary lives. Nevertheless, I have a few things against you. You have some people who are holding to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to set a trap for the people of Israel so that they would eat food that has been sacrificed to idols and to commit sexual sin. Likewise, you too have people who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Therefore, turn from these sins. Otherwise, I will come to you very soon make war against them with the sword of my mouth. Now those who have ears, let them hear what the Spirit is saying to the Messianic communities. To him winning the victory, I will give some of the hidden manna. I will also give him a white stone on which is written a new name that nobody knows except the one that's receiving it. The letter begins, as usual, with the divine message giver not identifying himself, but rather adding to the list of his characteristics that we got from the letters 1 and 2. Now he's the one with the sharp, double-edged sword. All of these characteristics are repeats of what was described in Revelation chapter 1. This is a longer letter than the previous one and much more complex in its message. Now Pergamum was located north of Smyrna. It was a center of learning and medical science. The library there was actually larger than the one in Alexandria, Egypt for the sheer volume of books. And as happens when cities are known as college towns, there are fine theaters and venues and such places are attractive to those with money. Thus there were numerous royal residences in Pergamum. The most iconic building of the many fine buildings in Pergamum was the Temple of Escapulus. There would be found a symbol, symbol quite familiar to most of us, and especially to the world of medicine, the wreathed serpent. Early medicine, you see, was full of superstition and idolatry as it was full of science. 
In fact, the early practice of medicine was directly associated with the worship of Satan. It is within this backdrop that the believers assembly in Pergamum exists. So it provides the context for this letter. And the letter states that God knows where the believers are and it is in the place of the adversaries or of Satan's throne. Exactly what Satan's throne is has adherence to many different viewpoints. One popular view is that it is speaking of the great altar at the temple of Zeus which by the way has been moved to Berlin, Germany. Another view is that this is speaking of Pergamum in general as it housed many ornate temples to the gods and thus the term Satan's throne is, is more of a nasty epithet than an actual piece of architecture. That is, Satan's throne just means that Pergamum was as evil as it gets in God's eyes. Kind of a latter-day Sodom. Now another view. This seems to me to be more likely, but not certain, is that it is speaking of the temple of Escapulus where they co-opted the brazen serpent lifted up on the pole of Exodus fame from the Torah, paganized it, and worshipped it. To this point, there's no hard evidence to prove any of these suggestions. But without doubt, <laughs> we can know God saw Pergamum as wicked beyond compare. And so that made life as a believer terribly difficult, full of temptation. In this difficult circumstance, God commends these believers at Pergamum for holding on to his name. Now, holding on to his name is usually, within Christianity, taken to mean that they continued to call themselves Christians. However, this is an anachronism. That is, the word Christian didn't exist in this era. But modern Christians read it back into the New Testament the same way the word church is read back into it. Remembering that Revelation is given to us in the context of Jewish culture and that it is a thoroughly Jewish document and that the human author John was a Jew then we'd be better off looking to what the concept of the word name meant to the Hebrews. The English word name is attempting to translate the Hebrew word Shem. And while Shem can indeed mean a given name, like, like Bob or Joan or, or Betty, it more often than not means reputation. Or to more fully define it, Shem includes the characteristics and attributes of a person. Thus, when we read that the good believers of Pergamum held on to God's name, it meant that they kept on behaving in the manner of God's reputation in order to uphold Him and didn't begin to also identify with some other God in town 
to make their lives a little bit easier. The believers also were quite courageous because they didn't deny the Lord even when a highly regarded member of their congregation named Antipas was killed. He was martyred. God refers to him as my faithful witness, so Antipas clearly died as a martyr. Who he was has thus far been lost to history. However, after encouraging the people, God says he does have a few things against them. Ephesus had only one thing against them. Lack of love that they had when they first believed. Smyrna had nothing against them. But poor Pergamum. Well, they're going to get a list of things that needs correction. The list begins with some of the congregation members holding on to the teaching of Balaam, who set a trap for the Israelites so that they would sin. And the specific sins mentioned are eating food sacrificed to idols and committing sexual sin. Now before we explore exactly what is meant by holding on to the teachings of Balaam, I want to conclude today's lesson by pointing out something really important about food and food sacrifice to idols. So just set down your Bibles and please look up here. Turn on those memory cells, every last one of them. I'm going to do this for the benefit of those who have not gone through the Torah with us. And as a refresher for those of you who have. Very briefly. When a Jew speaks about food, he doesn't mean it the way a typical Gentile thinks of it. Biblically, food is much more specific than meaning any edible thing. The Torah teaches us about two sets of laws concerning diet and food. The first set of laws tells us what potentially edible things for humans are permitted to be used as food by God's worshippers and therefore what things are prohibited for us. A second and separate set of laws speaks about how the permitted foods must be handled. Otherwise it becomes ritually contaminated and therefore it can't be consumed. <coughs> Ritual contamination in the Bible is called unclean. So permitted and prohibited food is not the same thing as clean and unclean food. Permitted and prohibited speaks about what is even allowable for food. Then clean and unclean speaks about the ritual purity status of any of the foods that are on that permitted list. Clean and unclean do not apply, hear me, 
They don't even apply to food that's prohibited because from the biblical perspective, it's not food. Therefore, when we're dealing with the issue of food, sacrifice to idols, it's speaking of two things, produce and meat. Historically, all types of produce are permissible for Jews. But the produce can become ritually unclean if it is not handled properly. Having it used as a sacrifice to an idol is one of those ways that it becomes, one of many ways, that it becomes ritually unclean. On the other hand, there's only certain meats that are permissible for Jews. Since pork, for instance, is not permissible, it doesn't matter if it's been sacrificed to an idol or not. It can't be eaten either way. Thus, from the biblical perspective, when we read about meat that cannot be sacrificed to idols and eaten by God worshippers, it's only referring to the permissible meats like beef and sheep and goat. The issue is that although they are the permitted meats, they have now been rendered ritually unclean the moment they are offered to pagan idols. So, they are no longer fit to be eaten by God worshippers, including believers, Jew or Gentile. We'll continue with the letter to Pergamum in our next lesson.